Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we launched during the work from home period with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're trying to do on these SALT Talks is replicate the experience that we provide at our global SALT conferences, which we host twice a year, once in the United States and once internationally, most recently in Abu Dhabi in 2019. And on these SALT Talks and at our conferences, what we're trying to do is provide our audience a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're thrilled today to welcome you to the sixth installment of our Pandemic Venture Investment Series, where top entrepreneurs, investors, and business leaders dive deep into the challenges and opportunities arising from the pandemic crisis and discuss breakthrough technologies that address issues ranging from coronavirus prevention and cure to social distancing and food supply. A reminder, this series is presented in partnership with Our Crowd, a leading global venture investment platform based in Israel. Uh, today's episode is the agri-food tech explosion in an era of disruption. And it features Laura Flanagan, the co-chief executive officer of Ripple Foods. And uh, before we went on, I was telling uh, Laura how I drink Ripple every morning and I put it every morning in my oatmeal. Uh, has eight grams of plant-based protein uh, per serving, one cup, and also is a great source of calcium, 50% more calcium than dairy milk. I'm an unpaid promoter of Ripple, and I'm sorry to the rest of our guests who I don't use your products, but I figured I had to shill for Ripple because I, I've tried all kinds of different uh, milk alternatives, and Ripple is my go-to for my oatmeal every morning and my, my drinking during the day. So welcome, Laura. Uh, our other guests are Lou Cooperhouse, the president and CEO of Blue Nalu, and Freddie Raitan, the chief commercial officer of Tevel. Uh, and today's talk will be moderated by our crowd's vice president of business development, Dan Fischel. Just a reminder, uh, if you have any questions for any of our panelists during today's talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen on Zoom. And with that, I'll turn it over to Dan for the interview. Thanks, John. And I have to start with my own uh, confession. I'm also a big fan of, of Ripple, uh, especially the chocolate milk one. But anyway, we're here to talk today about agri-food tech. Now, up until about a couple years ago, this used to be two separate terms, agri-tech and food tech. But what the pandemic has showed us is how uh, interconnected is the food we eat, the environment we live in, and our health. It doesn't show us just how interconnected it is, but also how fragile and vulnerable it is. I assume you would all agree with me that uh, if humanity were to take better measures in terms of food safety and sustainability, better look after the environment, we wouldn't have been facing today the devastating consequences of, of COVID-19. So after this grand statement, uh, again, my name is Dan Fischel. I'm Vice President of Business Development at Our Crowd. Our Crowd, we're a global investment platform. We invest in startups and we uh, invite accredited investors from around the world to invest alongside us on the exact same terms. We've been privileged to invest in over 200 portfolio companies, three of which are, again, here with us. Uh, so once again, we have uh, three companies that are on both ends on the agri-food tech equation. On the agri side, we have Tevel. They developed a, a fleet of autonomous drones that pick fruit and basically address 
the uh, the global uh, problem, uh, the global challenge of of uh, hiring uh, workers to pick fruit in the fields. We have uh, Blue Nalu, uh, a company that has developed uh, lab-grown seafood, and of course the company that is already commercial out there, uh, Ripple, that develops uh, pea-based uh, dairy alternatives. So let's start with you, Laura. Um, you, you already have a commercial product that's very, very successful in, in the stores. Uh, and I have to tell you, you know, my wife, uh, about a year ago, she started, like every week we have a completely different brand of a milk alternative in the fridge. She started with soy and then she went to uh, almond and now it's like the, uh, the oat season. Uh, but we had uh, the rice and oat and almond and, and uh, cashews. There's so much selection out there. What makes Ripple unique in this very crowded market? Well, thank you, Dan. Thanks for having us. And I want to thank both you and John for the wonderful endorsements of Ripple products. We're so glad to have you as part of the Ripple family. Uh, to answer your question, what makes Ripple unique? So Ripple is a portfolio, for those who aren't familiar with us, Ripple is a portfolio of foods and beverages that are plant-based dairy alternatives. So our largest product line today is the milk, which you're both familiar with. And what makes unique Ripple so unique and special is that yes, we use, today we use yellow peas as our source of protein. And our two co-founders, Neil Renninger and Adam Lowry, both former chemical engineers, developed a unique and proprietary process, uh, that is, we have filed patents for, that allows us to create a cleaner tasting plant protein. So that process and that protein we call Riptine. It stands for Ripple Protein, put it together, called Riptine. And we're able to create a cleaner tasting plant protein, which enables us to deliver better tasting products that still deliver very high protein levels. So as John mentioned at the beginning, we have eight grams of protein per serving, which is just as much as dairy milk. We have 50% more calcium and half the sugar of dairy milk. So we're able to deliver this very unique and wonderful combination of delicious tasting products without any sacrifices. You get the nutrition of dairy milk, you get the taste and texture of dairy milk. And so you're able to get the best of both worlds in a very sustainable product. By using yellow peas, we're able to save a significant amount of water, both with dairy alternatives and even versus other plant-based alternatives like almond milks that you mentioned that you have tried and experimented with. So on our website, ripplefoods.com, one of the first things that a consumer will see is what we call the ripple effect. And it's, it's based on the truth that each of us can take very small actions that have a ripple effect on the world and have a much bigger impact and so we have a counter on our website that shows every time a consumer purchases one of our products, how much water they've saved for the planet, how much plastic they've saved because we use recyclable plastic, uh, how much carbon we've saved, and all the good things they've done for themselves on how much more protein is in, in their diet, how much less sugar. So it's a, a wonderful combination of a proprietary technology, great tasting products, and little decisions every consumer can make to do good for the planet. So can you share some of this data? It's very interesting. So how much plastic has the world saved? How much uh, carbon emissions? Um, it's, in what it, way? it's in the millions and hundreds of millions, depending on the statistics. So there's mm -hmm. over, I think we're now uh, 200 
a million gallons of water saved. It's a, it's a very large number. And so you'll see that on our counter on the ripple effect and it's in real time. And so you'll see that the numbers are changing based on how many consumers are becoming part of the ripple family. So what type of products you already have uh, in stores? So we have our milk products, refrigerated milk products, and those come in several flavors, unsweetened original, uh, original vanilla, chocolate, uh, as you mentioned. We also have protein shakes, uh, which have 20 grams of protein and taste delicious. This past year, we launched ice cream, which is, uh, is a fan favorite. And so we have five different flavors of ice cream. And then we also have uh, some coffee products like half and half and coffee creamers as well. Can you talk about the technology? How do we, because I'm telling you, I've, I've tried many, many uh, milk alternatives. I've been forced by my wife and Ripple by far uh, is the best tasting milk I had is the, in terms of the, uh, again, the texture, uh, what makes the difference. Can you talk about the technology? How do you make this magic work? Yes. So as I mentioned, uh, it's, uh, our protein is called Riptin. And so a protein molecule by itself is tasteless. It's all of the impurities that surround the protein that are on the protein molecule that can give it a planty or beany taste. And what Adam and Neil developed was a proprietary process that's able to remove those impurities off the protein molecule better than anything else commercially available. And so with that process and able to remove the impurities up to 99%, depending on which, uh, which specific molecules you're looking at, uh, we're able to create a much cleaner tasting protein. And that allows us to put it in products like milk, where there's not much else that you can camouflage a plantier beanie taste, which is why if you try some of the other plant-based alternatives, um, they don't taste the same as milk. And that was part of the inspiration for Adam and Neil in starting and founding the company is they felt like no one was doing plant-based milks well at the time. And with this technology, we were able to launch a milk into the marketplace that tastes great, matches or exceeds the nutritional value of traditional milk uh, and still has a great creamy texture that everyone has come to know and expect from, from milk products. And so you've been around for about four years. Um, Ripple has been around for about four years. Mm -hmm. Four years. And um, now in, in how many uh, kind of uh, points of sale are you being, you know, offering your, your products around the U.S.? So we're in about 17,000 uh, traditional grocery stores here in the United States. And we're growing distribution every day. So we were able to um, get into Walmart this year uh, and doing well there. We've been able to get into a major convenience store here in the United States. We tested it first, it was successful. And so we expanded that. Uh, we did a test in a major club chain that's now being expanded. Uh, we just got distribution into Kroger stores in the, in the Midwest here in the United States. So every day we're growing distribution. We actually just got some of our products into certain school systems here in the United States, given the importance of having highly nutritious plant-based alternatives for children that are very accessible and available. So every day we are increasing our accessibility. So the, the, the sales of, of plant-based uh, milk uh, is growing. Can you share some data about you know, the traditional dairy milk versus uh, plant-based milk? So the plant-based dairy alternative category uh, is on track to become over a $2 billion category. And we are continuing to grow every day. And Ripple continues to exceed the growth of the broader plant-based category. 
So we are growing and gaining share every day. And we expect those trends to continue. In fact, since COVID really hit the United States in March, we've seen an acceleration in the growth of the dairy alternative category. And Ripple has benefited from that as well. Okay, great. So uh, a quick note uh, to, our, uh, to our audience. So we have a little uh, icon on the bottom of the screen. It says Q&A. Uh, we want to keep this uh, uh, conversation interactive, so please ask questions. We're going to leave enough time uh, to take some questions from the audience, but please already see uh, two questions here. Please add some more and we're going to address them very, very shortly. So now uh, we'd like to transition uh, from plant-based protein to uh, cell-based proteins, and, and uh, I'd like to welcome uh, Lou Cooperhouse from Blue Nalu. Uh, how are you, Lou? Doing great. Thank you very much for having us. So last week in, in Singapore, uh, you know, the regulators for the first time in the world have allowed the, the consumption of uh, lab-grown chicken nuggets. Uh, and that's a world's first. But you are staying away from the classic uh, chicken or beef scheme and are focusing on seafood, lab-grown seafood. Why is that? A great question, Dan. Uh, I think um, maybe just to even pick up on a term that Laura mentioned, the ripple effect. Um, what, what the world has uh, seen is obviously a, the beginning of a global transformation in our food supply, where consumers are seeking more sustainable solutions in their diets. Uh, that began with plant-based milks, and now we're seeing plant-based beef, like Beyond and Impossible, and so many other categories. It's, it's just on fire, Dean. And uh, what happened in 2013 was another technology was really launched as proof of concept for the first time, another alternative to manufacturing animal products without animals, uh, that being cell-based. So a proof of concept in actually beef was uh, first demonstrated. And frankly, Dan, I was so excited by this as a total game changer for the global supply chain of proteins uh, to actually manufacture a real product in vitro, if you will, that's the same flavor, texture, mouthfeel, same experience as conventional food products. But frankly, Dan, I, I was really, uh, I said to myself, the real opportunity, uh, the greatest of them all is seafood. And you use the word in your introduction, use the word vulnerability. Um, you know, our, our global supply chain of seafood is, in my opinion, the most vulnerable supply chain on our planet. It's a $200 billion sector where global demand is only increasing every year, it's the highest ever, uh, being really uh, uh, eclipsed by what's occurring in Asia as GDP increases um, and around the world as consumers are shifting from red meat towards seafood. The problem, of course, is we have a global supply chain gap as our seafood supply is increasingly diminishing, in some cases disappearing, um, due to warming oceans, acidification, and that's the human health side, microplastics, environmental pollutants, toxins, and mercury. Uh, and there's, as you know, uh, warnings uh, uh, on, on fish uh, by the EPA and the FDA here in America uh, about for pregnant nursing women to have zero or limited, limited amounts of seafood in their diets. So we could do something much better. We could actually manufacture a real seafood product a third way, wild-caught, farm-raised, now cell-based. So what we're doing is really uh, totally disrupting this whole supply chain by manufacturing the same product. Uh, it begins in the lab as all products do, whether it be oatmeal or, or, or almond milk or, or pea-based milk. 
um, but it's, it's made in a factory. So this looks a lot like a microbrewery making large scale production of cell-based seafood products. And we're just about one year away from launching our products in commerce here in the United States. We're under FDA regulatory uh, uh, environment. Um, and we're very excited by what happened by the Singapore Food Agency approving this for uh, cell-based chicken products. And we're focused, Dan, on, on the filet, the higher value finfish species like mahi-mahi, red snapper, bluefin tuna, uh, and even in the future, Chilean sea bass. Uh, so these products will soon be on our plates in just, uh, just a few years. So I, I just want to understand the product because we need, I think we need to visualize how it actually looks. It is just a filet. Does it look like a filet? Does it smell like a filet? Does it taste like a real filet of fish? It sure does. We, we actually have done a demonstration event uh, uh, internally and for our investors uh, last year. We're the first company globally to actually demonstrate the product, perform the same. I think just like uh, uh, Laura's describing how important the sensory attributes are of making a product that, that replicates what people are used to conventionally, uh, we similarly, you know, when you think about seafood, how do you prepare it? You know, really three kind of broad ways. I'm a food-centric, culinary-centric person uh, coming from the food industry. Um, and uh, how do people prepare seafood? Well, either they cook it. What does that mean? They broil it, they fry it, they saute it. They might deep fry it. They might steam it, microwave it. Um, you get the idea. And it, it needs to get caramelized. It needs to have all the same reactions as conventional seafood. Or they might put it in a if you will, an acidified marinade, like in kimchi or ceviche or poke, or they might you know, prepare it raw. Um, we demonstrated in every possible way, it performed the same, smelled the same, tasted the same, it is the same. Uh, the same nutritional composition, the same functional characteristics, and even uh, genetically, it is the same species. It actually comes from the same cells uh, that are used in conventional seafood products. So. Um, and that's what the FDA is, uh, is, is looking for. Um, they want us to demonstrate that our product really is uh, the, the same as conventional products. So we're doing all those comparison works right now. So Lou, I have to admit that first I'm gutted you didn't invite me to that uh, tasting last year. Next time. Um, there's always a, a, a second chance. But let's talk about the technology because this, this to me, to many, sounds like a, an act of witchery. How do you take how do you create fish that is not like, you know, naturally, you know, born in the, in the sea and the water? How does it work? How does the technology work here? If food technology is used in every industry, people don't think about it that much, but whether it's uh, candy, sausage, uh, cheese, or, or plant-based milk, there's all kinds of technology uh, that are used every day in the food industry. No witchery at all. It's just normal procedures that are used to manufacture products. As I described it, it's like a microbrewery. So if you think about that concept, what we're doing is we're, we're first, we're, we're, there's a two-step process. First, we are doing something which is uh, very critical. We are making what's called a stable cell line. So we're taking from a real fish, you know, mahi-mahi, for example, or bluefin tuna. We are isolating the cell types that are found naturally in the seafood that you might have for dinner. So mm -hmm. that seafood you have for dinner, if you think about it, has three, you know, the flavor comes from three types of cell types. There's muscle, fat, and then there's connective tissue. Um, so we have actually literally isolated those three cell types from fish and we're propagating them and having them double numerous times. Um, they double and double and double. So we are feeding them the same nutrients. They're, they're sitting, picture that microbrewery again, they're in a bath. 
the bath of these cells are in are nutrients. The nutrients are the same kind of nutrients that you might find in aquaculture feed, uh, like salt, sugars, amino acids, lipids, uh, vitamins, minerals, supplemented by other ingredients that we add to really propagate growth and have them to continue double to get these larger and larger volumes. Uh, and then these muscle fat and connective tissue are then formed into the actual filet of product. Could be a cube used in poke uh, or could be a filet. Um, so we are using some, again, food industry principles like extrusion uh, to actually uh, have the products layered uh, in the same uh, or, or more homogeneous in structure so we can replicate all the same sensory experiences uh, that you would want. Um, and what's really beautiful about what we're doing, Dan, is, you know, our product is 100% yield. We've talked about sustainability footprint. You know, today's seafood might be shipped from, say, Southeast Asia to, say, New York City. That's almost 10,000 miles along the way that fish that was caught, you know, might be, uh, might, it might have been accompanied by 30 to 50% bycatch. That's typically fish that's caught in nets that's thrown back, typically dead. That's, it's a lot of animal suffering um, and certainly a lot of inefficiency and then shipped long distances uh, with huge transportation costs involved uh, to then experience maybe a 50 or 60% yield by a food service operator because you have head, tail, bones, and skin. Our product is a fully yielded, just the filet. Um, so we are displacing all that transportation, all that loss of life, all that loss of yield uh, with a 100% filet, you know, totally sustainable solution with all the, you know, wonderful taste of seafood, but without any of the negatives of mercury, microplastics, et cetera. Yeah, so it's, it's safe for pregnant women, basically? Absolutely. So as much as okay. much as so, so that you know, she is now allowed, basically. Yes. And for children, too, and, and older people that might be immunocompromised. So a quick question for you about uh, market perception. You know, we're looking right now that there's the, the finally the, the COVID vaccine is, is uh, received the FDA approval. But there's so many people that are still saying, saying uh, I'm not going to I'm not I'm not going to get this vaccine It's going to change my DNA, et cetera, et cetera. Aren't you concerned? about what people would think about a fish that has been grown in a lab and not in the sea? Would they consume it? Uh, positively. You know, with, with any new food product, there's always early adopters. There was an early adopter to the first uh, person who said, uh, I don't want to, you know, go on a, you know, I'm used to a horse-drawn carriage, but no, here's a car. You know, so, so you know, here's a computer, here's an iPhone. So, yeah. so technology t always has early adopters. Um, who really see the value. In our case, human health, animal suffering, global sustainability are your reasons to make a difference and purchase this product. So again, we have no, no downsides to purchasing our product. Yes, it's made differently, but if you really know more about how food is produced, you'll say, no, it's actually made the same as a lot of other things that, you know, that are produced in the food industry. You just don't know that. So, so yes, there's always early adopters. We've actually done some consumer research that have already demonstrated, you know, at, at the restaurant level, huge interest in our products because right now they're experiencing with seafood, you know, tremendous losses in yield, uh, inconsistent variables, supply chain. With us, they get consistency, which is a real game changer. And for consumers, you know, they really have uh, shown that the human health benefits are, are clearly motivating them to make the, to make the purchase. So we're not concerned at all. Okay, thanks, Lou. And now I'd like to transition from surf to turf. 
Uh, and welcome, Freddie from Tevel Robotics. How are you, Freddie? I'm okay, thank you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So, Freddie, you've developed a, uh, a fleet of autonomous drones that pick fruit in the field. So what type of pro problems uh, are you trying to solve? Okay, so let me start by saying that the fruit consumption around the world has grown uh, to about 70 million tons, which is double what it used to be 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the other side, unfortunately, what we see is that on the agricultural sector, we are losing a lot of the workers that do the picking for these foods, mainly because it's very hard uh, work. It's, it's done under harsh conditions. And uh, the new generation is migrating to the urban uh, jobs, which are high paying and not seasonal. So what's you, what is happening is a, it's exactly the opposite. You have less people picking while you need more fruits to be picked, uh, and then you have a serious shortage around the world. So we came up with this brilliant idea of having uh, drones, which are robots in a sense that identify the fruit on the trees. Uh, they approach it, pick it, and place it on bins uh, that they don't damage obviously the fruit. Uh, and that is done completely autonomously. So, I mean, obviously in the agricultural sector, there's a lack of automation. Uh, we haven't seen much in the last 50 to 70 years, uh, be, but because of these shortages that we're gonna experience even more dramatically going forward, uh, there's a clear necessity uh, for inventions like ours to take uh, hold and for farmers to start using and uh, we're very excited about it. I think that the, the feedback that we're getting from the farmers, they cannot wait for us to, to be in the, I mean, helping them with this problem and we're looking forward to do so. So there is a video on your website of Tevele Robotics of how the product works. But in, for, for those who are, uh, you know, that would try to imagine how it looks, can you describe how does the product look? What exactly happens well, in the field? Sure. What we, what we have done is we have developed a drone like uh, it's different than a drone that you see from DJI. Uh, it has four propellers and it has an arm. It's a robotic arm. And on top of it, you have a lot of vision equipment. So you're combining three different technologies. Uh, obviously, the drone technology, which is aerodynamics, is, uh, has a lot to do with the flying. Uh, that's one technology. Uh, that is very much uh, uh, done or developed for working inside the farm environment with a lot of dust, inside leaves. Uh, so it has is serious challenges. The second portion of it is the artificial intelligence, which needs to identify the fruit. It has to, I mean, differentiate from leaves and fruits. Um, and then it has to understand the best angle of attack to come to approach the fruit in the at uh, the right uh, angle, uh, to grab it in a, in a very soft way, and that's where the third portion of it, which is a robotic arm, comes into play. Um, so you don't damage the fruit; you grab it, you bring it, you take it, and then the next portion of it is the land base, which is also autonomous. When you put the fruit in such a, you place the fruit in such a soft way, so it's not damaged at all. Um, and obviously this is done, like I said, in an autonomous way uh, where the farm doesn't have to be supervising or watching as, as all this is done in a, 
in, in parallel ways. So how does the, the drone know whether a fruit is ripe or not? Okay, we have sensors. That's a very good question because one of the things that the farmers are asking us uh, is to differentiate between precisely when the fruit is ripe to be picked and not. Part of the problem right now is that when you have pickers and they are paid by uh, the weight of the fruit, they just pick everything they have in front of them because that's more efficient, uh, regardless of whether the fruit is already uh, ripe or not. In our case, uh, we can determine that we have sensors around the grippers of the, of the, of the robot that understands the size of the fruit and also the color of the fruit. And depending on the programming that it was placed on each particular robot, in, you can decide to pick it if it's up to that level of size and color and not pick it if it's not. The important thing is that if, if the robot decided not to pick it because it's not ripe yet, it knows exactly the location where all these unripe fruit were not picked so then it can come back exactly to those locations that pick them at a later uh, time, uh, which is extremely efficient because obviously a, a ripe fruit uh, or the right level of, uh, of uh, bricks uh, for the farmer is, uh, has a very different price at the market than one that it's not, that will probably most likely end up going to concentrate or, or juices, which uh, pays probably a fraction of the fresh market. Uh, so that's a, a very important distinction that we can help the farmers with. So can you talk a little bit about the expected business model? I assume uh, you are you know, developing a product that still has to make sense in terms of cost to the farmers. Sure. Um, uh, sure. If I, if I take, for example, right now, the base case, let's say in apples, uh, around the world, an average will be for $100 a ton, the cost. Uh, we anticipate that given our cost of operation, which is significantly lower uh, than the farmers, uh, we could probably save the farmers around 30 to 40% of that cost. And, and the main reason for that is that there's a lot of overhead cost that uh, farmers have to pay for bringing uh, uh, these uh, pickers you have to pay them traveling expenses. You have to hold them in hotels or, or houses that they built for them. You have to transport them. You have to feed them. You have to pay insurance. Uh, you have a, a health insurance. You have a sickness. All these kind of things are not relevant to us. Uh, as robots, obviously, don't have to deal with any of this. And uh, the second part of it is the flexibility to be able to pick. I mean, this is a seasonal business. For example, apples are picked three months out of the year. Uh, then you have citruses, you have uh, stone fruits and so forth. Our drones offer us the flexibility to move instead of the farmers uh, buying this equipment and using this as a capital expenditure, while we go into the market with a model of renting this equipment. Uh, that you lease it uh, as many as you want for as long as you want. Uh, and then just you will use it for, let's say, the three months of the season. We will take them back and then we will move them to the citrus locations where they will be used for another three or four months and then for stone fruit. So we have a year-round business where we take care of the, the usage of the drones 
and not the farmer, which only uses it for three or four months. So I think it's a win-win from their point of view and ours as well. Okay, thanks, Freddie. So now I'd like to uh, uh, open a question for, for all three of you. We are uh, in the midst of a global pandemic, and I'm just wondering how it's been the, the uh, implications on your business. Okay, I can start. start. Yeah, start with you. Okay, I, I, it was pretty dramatic for, for our business because I think that what the world learned is that most of the pickers come from different, from different regions of different countries. I'll give you an example. When France and Germany closed their borders, uh, they realized that there were no pickers for their fruits. So the whole supply of fruits in those two countries and many others was absolutely disrupted to such an extent that they, they thought that they would bring local employees or local people to, I mean, to pick the fruit. And they realized that uh, either the money wasn't good enough for them to do it or the conditions were too tough and there was expertise to know how to do it. So they had no choice but to make the exception and allow, I mean, flights, charter flights in these two countries for flying from Eastern Europe, these pickers to do the, the picking as they normally do. And that happens in the US as well because a lot of these pickers came from Mexico, which has been disrupted uh, by the COVID. Uh, and and any, in many other countries that we saw, is that all this migration that was coming in and out for these jobs disappeared. So he's creating, is exacerbating the problem for these uh, fruit uh, farmers uh, because they, they, this uh, supply has vanished in a, in a lot of ways and prices have gone higher. Experts, they're trying to uh, teach locals to do it, but they're finding it extremely difficult. So uh, yeah, I also understand that uh, during COVID times, you had a POC, a proof of concept in, in South Africa that has been canceled. Uh, and you just took this time to uh, train the algorithm on additional types of uh, fruit. So now we can actually uh, can pick not just apple, but also uh, peaches. peaches. Yeah, peaches. We train on peaches and yeah, and citrus. Favorite fruit, yeah. Correct. Okay, Lou or Laura, the yeah. impact of COVID. Yeah, well, COVID for the Ripple business has been both uh, a headwind, but to be honest, more of a tailwind for the business. So back in the middle of March is where here in the United States, the lockdowns and other more extreme measures started to happen. And we were getting panicked phone calls from our consumers because Ripple was selling out in grocery stores all across America. And our consumers are very passionate and very loyal to our products. And they couldn't find them because we were sold out. And so knowing that the next several months were probably going to be a period of volatility in both consumer demand and in supply chain and in our retailer supply chain, we very quickly and very deftly developed and launched our own e-commerce direct-to-consumer website. And I am so proud of the team at Ripple who developed this in less than two to three weeks, we had our site up and running so that a consumer, no matter where they were uh, and where they lived, they would have access to Ripple products. And so yeah. today we sell on our website, our refrigerated, our frozen, and all of our shelf-stable products. And it opened up an entirely new channel for us that we really didn't have on our radar screens at the beginning of the year. So that's been the good news is that it opened up a whole new channel for us. Uh, our performance in stores has increased as I mentioned, COVID actually was a tailwind for the plant-based dairy alternative category. So we've seen an increase in momentum there. 
the one headwind that we had was that, you know, as a growing company with launching new products, we were expecting to get distribution of many of our new products back in the second quarter of this year. And there was no grocery retailer who wanted to reset their shelves in the middle of that pandemic and in the middle of all the panic buying. And so it delayed us getting distribution, some of our new distribution and new accounts. And so one major retailer we were supposed to get in April, we ended up you know, shipping in September and October. So it's performing really well now and for the long-term health of the business will be fine, but we did have some delays in getting some new distribution. Okay, Lou? Yeah, Dan, I would just add, you know, maybe as, uh, as Freddie and Laura mentioned, you know, I think the whole world woke up to just how how fragile our supply chain is in all categories due to the pandemic. And uh, uh, I, I think, uh, you know, we were very fortunate to continue working uh, as, as uh, in our company here in Southern California. Um, but uh, we were also frankly saw so much more excitement, enthusiasm from the investor community um, due to, you know, just a, an increased realization about this uh, fragile, vulnerable supply chain. Um, and food security really became uh, even a word that we, we hear more and more along with sustainability. Um, the world needs to feed itself in the coming decades. And uh, this, this, this fragile nature of our supply chain uh, can only possibly, God forbid, get worse. And, and, uh, but should that happen, you know, we need new solutions. You know, as we and I have talked before, Dan, we, we don't have a choice. We must create a new supply chain solution, particularly for seafood. Um, you know, so we're excited to be you know, part of that part of that equation. Okay, great. So uh, unfortunately, we're running out of time. We have, we're into the last five minutes uh, of this session. And I'm just wondering if you can quickly, one, one or two minutes, uh, tell us about your view about the future of your sector. Where will we be in five years? Again, plant-based proteins, cell-based proteins, uh, informed technologies. I, I will give it a shot uh, to start. Uh, there's no question that because of uh, the issues I described before, the problems are going to be exacerbated in the next five years. So there's going to be no option but for automation to come into the farms and to help the farmers uh, with all these dramatic shortages that they will be facing, which is only going to get worse. So we expect that if we do our job from our end in developing this to make it easier enough and autonomous enough for the farmers to use, then the challenge will be to deploy it uh, for, I mean, obviously farmers are very traditional uh, in the way of uh, doing their businesses. So we have to have a simple enough solution so we can really expand it and grow it as fast as they need it uh, in as many countries as possible. I fully agree with you, by the way, what we see um, and history suggests uh, that after, you know, that we see, we will see a spike in, in automation following this, this crisis. It happened before in, in 2008, it happened in 2000, it happened in, in 1991. And what we see is that um, uh, automation comes in spikes and it's centered around economic uh, crisis when the, the you know, uh, and employees that are losing their job are simply replaced with a mix of technology and, and highly skilled workers. Uh, but now, of course, we have AI, which we didn't have in previous uh, recessions. So we're definitely going to expect to see a spike in AI technology in the in the next five five years. Um, Lou or Laura? Mm -hmm. Yes, there's um, 
then I think there'll absolutely be a continued migration to plant-based or, or in loose case, cellular products. There's heightened awareness now of the climate change issues and with a new uh, administration coming in in January here in the United States, I think there'll be more focus on climate change and sustainability issues. I serve on two uh, boards of public companies and no question that boards and investors, retailers and consumers are now far more interested and engaged in finding solutions, sustainable solutions for the products that they choose. So there will absolutely be a continued migration. And I think the pace of that will depend on how quickly, you know, com Lou's company and companies like Ripple close the gap to animal-based products. So how quickly we close the taste gap, how quickly we close um, availability gaps, how quickly we close cost gaps to animal type products. And every day we are making strides in that area. So I think we're gonna, as we close those gaps and as consumers don't have to make sacrifices, either taste sacrifices, nutrition sacrifices, or, or financial sacrifices to choose sustainable products, we're gonna see an acceleration in plant spreads. Okay, thanks. And Lou? Yeah, yeah Dan. Um, in fact, uh, there have been some projections. Uh, what I'm thinking about is from the uh, AT Kearney Consulting Group that actually has projected that by the year 2040, 60% of our global supply chain of protein will be either plant-based or cell-based. And that conventional meat products will go from roughly 100% today down to 40 and become unconventional in just two decades. So to answer your question, we will start to see the first large-scale factories within five years. Again, we plan to launch in, in commerce in a limited capacity late next year um, to be followed by factory one, two, and three. So, so, you know, just as plant-based uh, has seen, uh, you know, kind of level one of, uh, of excitement of the category, cell-based is right behind it with the second solution, giving consumers what they always want, options. Um, and different products will find, you know, or different categories will have different, you know, optimal solutions. Uh, you know, so, so we're, we're just seeing, uh, again, just tremendous choices coming and new sustainable solutions. And again, I think uh, for all, all three of us, our panelists, uh, we are really in the front end of a, just a global transformation. So the future is bright. I assume as far as you're concerned, although the cost would go down significantly because now it's probably quite expensive to uh, eat uh, some uh, uh, lab-grown meats and fish. That's correct, Dan. Yeah, right now it's all, it's all very benchtop scale. Um, but what we're seeing, what we will see clearly is economies of scale will enter this space and make an enormous difference that, you know, this industry is moving from farmer grade supply chain cost modeling to food grade, uh, very different, uh, bizarrely different uh, margin structure involved uh, when you go down to food grade, all about economies of scale. So yeah, as these large factories come into play, we will be at price parity or uh, I believe better. Uh, uh, at, you know, in the meantime, conventional seafood is only increasing uh, in availability and costs, um, and, uh, and, and our costs will continually decrease. So, so we actually believe we can be profitable in factor number one. Um, so that's, that's, where, that's where we think uh, this industry is going. Great. Unfortunately, our time is up. Uh, Lou, Laura, and Freddie, thank you very, very much for your time. I'm sure we could have continued this conversation for many long hours. Uh, but for more information about Ripple, Blunalu, and Tavella Robotics, uh, please go to the SALT website. Um, thank you very much, uh, Laura, 
Lou and Freddie, and we look forward uh, to seeing you uh, in ad additional upcoming webinars. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Bye-bye.